Ukrainians have had a lot of support from the Central Intelligence Agency. And I, you know, I got to work on one of the uh, covert action programs back in 1985. Uh, it was against uh, the Soviet Union, then in Afghanistan. And our ability to plant stories and put out information that would put, uh, create the narrative that we wanted was remarkable back then. And this was pre-internet days. We literally were getting articles planted in magazines where the editors of the magazines, one, believed that the CIA was a nefarious influence in the world, and two, believed the CIA was trying to get information in their magazine. And the fact of the matter is we did, and they didn't know about it. I'm very pleased to be speaking today to a guest who offers valuable and necessary insights on the current situation in the Donbass and Ukraine, and also the media portrayal, or rather misportrayal, of what is taking place. I came across Larry C. Johnson on James Howard Kunstler's podcast and very much encourage people to listen to that very informative conversation. So, Larry, welcome. You are a very refreshing voice to encounter. Hi there. Glad to be with you. So um, I, I do want to talk about your own history and your own work. But right now, I just want to start with um, a basic question. If you had to explain to your average, let's say your average North American, for example, who is uh, confused, who has been gaslit by Western corporate media on what is happening in Ukraine, in just in sum, what would you explain to them about what's happening regarding Russia's military operation there and anything else you think is relevant? This has been a, a problem long developed, or it's, it's been coming for a while. Um, but it's almost like the United States is bored, needed something to do, and, and decided to provoke this. Because there, there's no rational explanation for it. This this decision to constantly provoke Russia, portray Russia as this bogeyman, this enemy that had, must be stopped. When you go back, I was one of the early ones to, to call out the, the lies surrounding Trump and Russiagate from the very beginning, because I, I, I knew I had a friend on the inside uh, that, uh, with the intelligence community that was flagging it to me, that this just was without sense. But uh, the West always needs, it's like Hollywood. You need a villain to tell a story. And so Russia becomes this convenient villain. And it's a, so in the narrative, Putin becomes the source of all evil, you know, worse than Hitler, worse than Stalin, worse than Pol Pot. Uh, you know, the guy, guy didn't even have a body count to match, not, not even you know, close. And yet, uh, it, 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 he's, he must be stopped at any at, at, uh, for without regard to reason and, and consequences. And when I, when you know, I used to be involved with scripting military exercises. So there was a lot of when you look at the U.S. Uh, with NATO and UCOM, European Command exercises along the borders of Russia, and it's it's always portrayed that. NATO is a defensive organization. Well, that's a bunch of crap. When you, <clears throat> you can see uh, they, they scrubbed the websites, but shortly after the war began, on the, uh, the special military operation on the 24th, the war, <clears throat> on UCOM website, you could find the Yavoriv base. That was the base in Western Ukraine that was hit uh, by uh, Russia in the second, third week of the war. And on this UCOM website, 
they describe doing a cyber warfare training. And in it, they explicitly stated it was for offensive operations. Okay, there goes the NATO is just about defense. Mm -hmm. uh, there were the Marine Corps had a, a, a video up showing their troops in an amphibious landing craft landing on the shores of Ukraine in an exercise. How in God's name that is a defensive exercise, I'll never understand. So I always like to try to look at it from the standpoint of what do the Russians think? Because if I'm a Russian military analyst, or if I'm an intelligence officer, I'm looking at this saying, <clears throat> this is not pretend, this is not game. The United States has a genuine plan to attack us, to evade us. You've got to make that as an assumption. You can't assume, oh, they're, they're just kidding, because they're not kidding. Look over the last 30 years. The only country in the world to have launched more military operations against other countries is the United States. Uh, if, if you doubt that, go ask the Iraqis. They got, they got the treatment twice. The Afghanis, they got it. The Panamanians. And, uh, let's go back 42 years. Grenada. Uh, so, and don't forget the folks in the Baltics and Syria. Oh, and Libya. So, it, you know, it's, it, it's really a list of, uh, of death and destruction. And it has not produced peace, tranquility, or agency. So this was, um, I don't know if it was, I, I think someone had come up with the plan, okay, let's encourage Ukraine to go in and take out the rest of Donbass and get all the Russian influence out of there. Um, and they, I don't think they counted on the fact that Russia would push back. And then, uh, so, you, so you very rightly um, gave some context to uh, America's uh, history and, and litany of um, invasions and bombings of sovereign nations. Um, and now let's, how about you, could you please compare, um, in light of that, uh, the, how Russia's conducting its military operation in Ukraine versus how America conducted invasions and bombings of countries? That's what's really interesting in uh for several, for a couple of months anyway, both uh, Andrei Matyanov and myself have been pointing out that the United States really has not fought a, a genuine foe, somebody who could fight back uh, since World War II, or let's say the Korean War. Uh, Vietnam even doesn't even really count, because in Vietnam they were not up against um, air, uh, 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 air Force that had the competence of the United States. Um, they didn't really fight that many engagements against the North Vietnamese army. Most of the attacks were against the Viet Cong. But now all of a sudden, here's Russia going up against a real army. The, the Ukrainian army had been trained and outfitted by NATO in, in large measures since uh, 2014. And what's fascinating is watching U.S. generals appear on television talking about how bad, how slow, how inept the Russians were. And, and <clears throat> I just did a simple comparison. I looked at how long it took the Nazis in World War II when they started the invasion on June 21st of 1941. How long did it take them to get to Kiev? Or, sorry, there, my, my real pet peeve, if you watched all these Western media analysts calling it Kiev, I mean, Kiev, as I understand it, at least according to Google Translate, is the Russian pronunciation. 
the Ukrainian pronunciation is like Kyiv. So isn't it curious that Russia claims that Kiev is actually a Russian city and all the Western media is calling it by the Russian name, which I think validates the Russian point, just <laughs> the, the humor of it. But it, it underscores the ignorance of the people talking about this in large measure. Um, but going back to when I compared what the Nazis did getting to Kiev, it took them seven, seven to eight weeks, almost two months to get to Kiev. And at that point, the, the, the Nazis were not trying to avoid civilian casualties. They were not trying to leave cities and villages intact. There were steamrolling the place. They were killing wantonly. And then it took them another month and a half from, uh, let's see, from the end of July, uh, from August 7th until the end of September to secure Kiev. So you look at what Russia did, Russia was on Kiev's doorstep within a week, three days, I think. Uh, and in that period, they moved so quickly to dominate uh, a, a landmass that was equivalent to or larger than the entire United Kingdom, England, Scotland, Ireland, Wales. And on top of that, they ended up taking out critical military systems. So they took out the ground radar. Without the ground radar, the Ukrainian Air Force had no ability to do air-to-air -air intercept because they were dependent upon that ground radar. Um, Ukraine, Ukraine did not have control of the air. And then the, they didn't really demonstrate any ability to move their military force in a way that would you would expect from somebody that had a functioning army. And the example I used with, uh, with uh, Mr. Kunstler was that with the, the highly touted tank column that was north of Kiev for a week or two, it was variously described as 40 kilometers or 40 miles. Nobody seemed to recognize there's a difference between 24 miles and 40 miles. And that tank column sat there. Now, Western military officers see the Russians are overstretched. They, they can't resupply their tanks. They've run out of gas. But what caught my attention was that's a big fat target. You, you know, Helen Keller could shoot that. So this, it, but it sat there unmolested virtually. And, and what, what do I mean by attacking it? If you, have a, if you have a functioning air force with rockets, missiles, bombs on it, it should be strafing that column, blowing up tanks, blowing up trucks, or a helicopter with rockets. It should be flying in, attacking all along that column. If you don't have that, where's your army? Bring up your tanks. Your tanks can attack from the sides. That didn't happen. Well, they got all those you know, anti-tank guided missiles that we've sent them, the javelins and the end laws. Hey, send your troops out, because they got a 600, 500-yard range. So you don't have to right, like sneak up right next to it, stand off and fire away. That didn't happen. So I sat back and said, whoa, <laughs> you know, the, the Ukrainian military is not a real military now. It's been eviscerated. It's been neutered. And Russia was very effective in doing that. The, the other element of that tank column, I believe, was to create, a, create bait that would draw a bulk of the uh, uh, Ukrainian army into a defensive posture around uh, the city of Kiev and the northern suburbs and keep them away from the Donbass from resupplying that, mm -hmm. which apparently it succeeded in doing. 
Uh, on, on top of it, then the, the Russians were trying to avoid civilian casualties. Now, there was a fascinating article in CNN, and God knows I don't read CNN or listen to it or watch it, but it was about this, they are interviewing a U.S. special, it was described as U.S. Special Forces soldier. So I'm assuming was Green Beret. Um, and he had joined up. He had fought in Afghanistan. And he had fought in Iraq. And he expressed genuine shock of what it's like to be on the receiving end of airstrikes and artillery strikes. Because his entire wars in Iraq and Afghanistan were doing that to the little brown people, to the goat herders. They didn't, they couldn't fire back. And you know what? That's like, that's like the guy who thinks he's, I'm a mixed martial artist. I know how to fight. And all you do are beating up kids in wheelchairs. And then all of a sudden you get thrown into a real mixed martial arts academy. He got his butt kicked. I mean, and, and he quit. He had to withdraw after four days. And on my blog, someone noted, he says, well, I really feel bad for Kevin. That was this guy's name that printed. I really feel bad for Kevin that he, he got shook up after being pummeled for four days by the Russians. Can you imagine what it's like for the people in the Donbass who've been bombed for eight years? And that, that brings us to this um, his not so historical. I mean, eight years isn't that long ago. It's long for the people of the Donbass in terms of the longevity of the war they've been under. But this has been... Uh, totally um, omitted in corporate media reporting. And, and so back to my initial question, you know, and when I said uh, the Western audiences have been gaslit by, by the corporate media, of course, because that's what they do best. Uh, I suppose like your average Westerner that's turned their Facebook profile photo into a Ukraine flag and hashtag I stand with Ukraine uh, doesn't, isn't aware, I, I guess, unless they're aware and just incredibly um insensitive and racist or what have you um that ukraine has been bombing the people of the donbass like four million people for eight years i don't remember if it was mark twain or ambrose bierce who said a war is god's way of teaching people about geography and the average american if you ask them to find ukraine on a map they would, they would say is that in the southern or western part of the united states they don't you know. and history Forget about, you know, the, when they do uh, the man or woman on the street interview here with uh, different shows, they don't even know who the vice president is. The level of ignorance about just basic, you know, who's in charge of politics, or they've asked questions, who, who fought in World War II? No idea. And we're, we're talking probably 80% of Americans. So uh, they, when conflicts like this start and they're initially televised, cable news networks are showing it, it's popping up on social media, then everybody wants to pretend that they're in the know and they exhibit enough information just to be dangerous. But they really have no understanding of the history or context. And when you try to explain this to people, then you, you get accused of being, oh, you're, you're a tool of poop. You're a Russian lover. No, I just, I believe in facts. And uh, we have... We've done a very convenient and, and, and deceitful job of convincing the American people that Russia is evil and Putin and particularly is just, he's the worst man in the world. And, you know, I've come to the conclusion, the real reason for the anger directed 
at Putin by political types in the United States goes to the heart of the matter is Putin will not allow Russia to be raped of its resources. That's the bottom line. Yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry I, uh, to, to interject, but I mean, um, I, uh, it's the same with Syria, you know, prior to 2011, um, Western media and leadership praised uh, President Assad as a reformer, uh, as an open-minded reformer that was, you know, bringing um, good things to Syria. And then as soon as the war on Syria started, boom, everything changed, just like their um, characterization of President Putin. It's gross, um, just ridiculous and absurd um, and grotesque vilification of wow. these these leaders, and of, of course, uh, any leader really that's in the crosshairs of uh, the U.S. and its allies. Um, but I, I was actually going to ask you about that. So now that we're discussing this, how would you, just based on on, on President Putin's speeches alone, how would you characterize him? Is he a lunatic? I mean, obviously, I don't believe that. Well, that that, that was the other thing that strikes. So when all of this was heating up, I was taking the time to watch his, <clears throat> his speeches and his addresses. There was, you know, I, I wish to God we had someone like that at, in charge of our country right now, because frankly, he was rational. He was reasonable. He was very direct. He was informed. He was uh, coherent and articulate. So uh, it, it, and th- that was complete opposite of the picture that was painted in the West of some snarling madman that was, you know, uh, like Hitler in the movie Downfall, you know, yelling at people and pounding the table and, you know, telling the generals to get in there and take over the world. Uh, And this, the narrative that's been created in the West that Russia is intent on putting together the Soviet Union again and reestablishing the communist empire. Wait a second. They're not communists predominantly anymore. The communists are a minority party in Russia, okay? Uh, Number one. And when I tried to point out, well, Putin is actually uh, an Orthodox Christian. Oh, no, he's not. Well, yes, he is, but ignore that. And and within that, they ignored that, you know, I think Putin has raised some very legitimate questions about the degeneracy of the West. And and I and in fact, I think one of the driving forces for the criticism is the homosexual influence in U.S. media is they're, they're pushing back against uh, Russia just on that very issue. They have no no reason to try to paint Russia as as a, a real country with some real interests trying to pursue its own security. So this this disconnect, trying to bridge it, because I have never, I've been a media talking head. I started in 1996 for a while. I've been effectively banned from the media over the last 10 years. But I've never seen this level of propaganda and deliberate suppression of alternative views as is going on right now. And the only thing I contributed, can attribute it to is the, um, corporate control of the media that the, the, there's it's become a money-making business without regard to truth without regard to actually informing people and they've really lost their way and as a result the american people suffer they can just they can easily be led around social social media outlets like this podcasts like yours provide an alternative and it does reach at least 
hundreds of thousands, if, if not more. And it, it's in a, but it's not totally effective in countering the propaganda. What's up, ladies and gentlemen? It's Mr. C from The C Report, and I'm stopping in for just a sec to encourage you guys to head over to thecreport.com. At thecreport.com, you can get more information on The C Report, check out episode resources, follow our blog and get new articles every week, join our mailing list, and stay abreast on the latest news and information. That's right, head on over to thecreport.com. That's www.thecreport.com. And be sure to follow us on our social medias, Truth Social, Rumble, Twitch, Clout Hub, and Pill.net. It's really a frustrating uphill battle that we are, are waging and simply trying to get people to consider a different perspective, exercise critical thinking, step away from the dominant corporate media narrative. I, I know from reporting from and on Syria, like since 2014, uh, I saw how corporate media worked in lockstep. Prior to that, I wasn't so in, aware of it. I was like, I initially, back in the day, I thought, oh, maybe one day I'll write for The Guardian, you know, thinking um, naively that that would be a good thing, not as a career move, but in terms of like a platform to get a message out. But uh, in Syria, I saw how The Guardian, the BBC, Channel 4, CBC, every major corporate platform and a lot of the minor ones were reporting almost verbatim the same lies. And I would literally be seeing something in Syria, in Aleppo or elsewhere, and they'd be reporting the opposite, you know? And, and I'm sure you've noticed this, um, and it, I think it would apply to reporting on Ukraine as well. In Syria, what they did often was say, um, sources say, or media activists say, and often didn't even give names to the people. And uh, the times that they did, I remember a New York Times report, I think it was on Eastern Ghouta, and they, they named uh, at least, I think, three different people. And so I, I looked their names up, found them very quickly on Facebook, and found within minutes their allegiance to uh, Al-Qaeda and ISIS, you know. So these were their neutral sources, you know, or else, of course, we have the famous White Helmets, we have the Aleppo Media Center, all these sources that were funded by the West and that were provoked, uh, promoting, excuse me, a very um, anti-Russia, anti-Syria, pro-Al-Qaeda, fuzzy rebel kind of narrative, you know, and I think we're seeing the same with reporting on Ukraine now. Yeah, no, this is this is a continuation of that playbook. I mean, I I was the one who flagged to Cy Hearst the fact that the uh, false uh, you know, sarin gas attack was, was completely contrived and didn't happen as presented. And then Cy dug into it and confirmed what I, okay. what I shared. I had another source of information without it didn't divulge the actual source to Cy, but just enough to say, <clears throat> hey, you need to look at this. Wow. Because it, it was completely made up. Uh, and yet <clears throat> that was being used as an excuse to try to bring in U.S. military intervention. Now, thank God that Russia did intervene in Syria back then because, you know, the United States was arming the, the, the rebels, the, the Syrian, the Islamists, not just not just, you know, people wanting to oust Assad, but they were genuinely sending it to the Islamic radicals. Yeah. That, and that goes back to Benghazi. That's part of the reason Benghazi, uh, they covered up what happened there, because Benghazi was the, the shipment point, the staging point for those weapons. David, David Petraeus made a trip to Turkey on September 4th of um, uh, 2012 to 
you tell the Turks, okay, we're going to have to back off and stop providing this weapons flow right now because we don't want it to interfere with Barack Obama's reelection. And that's why Chris Stevens, Ambassador Chris Stevens, was in Benghazi to meet with the Turkish uh, consular from their embassy to say, okay, to shut it off on that end. That's why he was there. It, it, this is just one more example of the this desire of the United States to intervene and in the process of intervening, not making the world a better place. I am a, I'm literally a child of this generation. I, mean, I was born in 1955, about the time that we're overthrowing the, uh, the elected leader of uh, Iran, and then <clears throat> followed by uh, ousting the president in Guatemala. You know, the United States has a, has a long litany of interfering in the affairs of other governments in order to make it, to bend it to our will. And yet, the ones that we always cite as the reason we're doing this is because the, the, then the Soviets and now the Russians are trying to take over the world. And we're trying to prevent that for, you know, democracy, truth. And it's a lie. And the, the, maybe the one benefit out of Ukraine, uh, apart from the, the terrible carnage that's going on, which is a horror, that the United States hypocrisy on this is finally fully exposed and the United States is going to pay a terrible price for it because the, the, this effort to impose sanctions on Russia has blown up on the United States like nobody ever imagined. And this, this one is going to continue to beat us down in, in the States. So um, I, I just want to go back to what you've just said. Uh, you, you made reference to the carnage that's going on. Um, and so Western media is presenting, um, you know, what Russia is doing in Ukraine, its military operation, which you've already outlined is very strategic. And they moved uh, with precision and, you know, targeting military um, targets, uh, not intentionally, to my knowledge, uh, targeting civilian infrastructure. Um, but the way Western media is presenting it is that uh, Putin, of, again, with a gross um, mischaracterization, is uh, some sort of genocidal maniac just slaughtering civilians. So, um, of course, there are, are civilian casualties, but this actually brings me to my next question, and that is, just as we saw in Syria, um, where terrorists occupied schools and hospitals and militarized them, uh, so too are Ukrainian and Nazi forces uh, doing so. And when I was in... Um, uh, the Donets, uh, in the Donbass in uh, the DPR um, in March um, with a, 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 a media delegation, we went to the town of Volnavaka. There was a hospital there that was badly damaged, um, but what two French media outlets, uh, when they issued their report, did not include was the chief physician of that hospital saying specifically Ukrainian forces had occupied it, and when leaving, they had mined it. When um, forces occupy a school or a hospital and militarize it and shoot from it, does that not render it a target? Sure it does. I mean, this is, um, the, the Ukrainian operation, they recognize that they're going to have to fight from a defensive posture because they've lost their offensive capability. So all they can do is fight a holding action. <clears throat> and part of it too is, and I think it had helped from my former organization, the CIA, and from uh, U.S. military of embedding themselves in civilian areas 
in order to one, cause the Russians to hesitate in attacking, and two, if the Russians do attack, to be able to uh, gain some propaganda value from saying, see, the Russians are just wantonly killing civilians. You know, I often see on social media from the trolls uh, who generally I, I ignore, but anyway, one of the comments is Russian forces have been in the Donbass uh, for the past eight years. What would you say to that? It's not true. Uh, has, has Russia provided support to the people in, in the Donetsk and the Hans Republic? Sure, uh, as they should, just as the United States provides support to a variety of countries where we believe our security interests are at risk. What, what I just can't get my mind wrapped around is why so many Americans refuse to acknowledge that a country that is right on Russia's border merits Russia's attention. They're, 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 they've got this notion that Russia is doing something so completely untoward. It'd be one thing if Russia was trying to impose its will on Argentina. That's a bit of a hike. But <laughs> this is right next door. And when we look at the American history, that uh, going back to the Monroe Doctrine, that by God, it didn't matter if it was a, did not even had, didn't have to be on our border. If it was anywhere in our hemisphere, in the general vicinity, like Argentina, we we're going to do something to stop that outside influence. So there, uh, I'm always one about consistency, and this is uh, complete hypocrisy on the part of the United States. Uh, Russia, I'm actually surprised at the restraint Russia has shown over the years. Um, and, and it speaks something to the quality of the people in the Donbass that they were able to hold off the Ukrainian army over this period. Because uh, the, the army, as apparently they were getting prepared to do, if they had rolled in there with all their force and might, uh, they, they should have been able to have taken this place years ago. They didn't. And I think part of that, uh, in a way, could be a preview of what could happen in the United States. I know this sounds a little far-fetched and crazy, but what undid that invasion of the Donbass was when members of the Ukrainian military who were from that area or sympathized with that area, where they defected and went over to uh, the, the militia side and fought back. And that completely stalled the army. And the way the political split is going in the United States, I, I could see such a thing developing because there's you know, what used to be a, a common ground and a common belief is now sharply, sharply divided. And uh, the, the things that uh, America once stood for are being trashed on a daily basis. So there are, uh, you know, I, I fear that what we're watching uh, take place in the Donbass could be a preview of coming attractions. Um, and I'd like your comment, please, on um, one of the um, themes put out by Western media is that, and, and you might have already um, touched on this a little bit, so I apologize for repeating, but uh, that Russia, Russia has taken huge losses in Ukraine. Wow. And actually, a very humorous incident uh, related to this, which I'm sure you're aware of, is this four-star general, McCaffrey, I think his name is, 
tweeting. I don't know anything about video games, but he tweeted video game footage claiming Ukrainian forces had shot shot down a Russian plane, and they later retracted and say, "Oh, sorry, I was mistaken." How does a four-star general make that kind of mistake? I don't think he knew anything. He, he was just he was just taken in by the video. I know for a fact that about three weeks into uh, the special opera, special military operation, aka war, that the United States was reporting Russian casualty figures based upon what Ukraine was telling us, which is shocking, because the way intelligence is supposed to work—that yeah, we can get. Ukraine giving us information is called liaison reporting. So that's one source. But we also have intercepts. We intercept communications. We have the ability with overhead imagery to, and drones to, to see what's actually going on the ground. You have a way of intercepting what's going on on the Russian side. So there would have been other means to either verify, double check, or come up with an independent number. And they didn't do that. They were reporting like 15,000 Russians were dead. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, and I've got this from a friend who was directly involved in uh, some of the intelligence briefings. He said, oh, just literally overnight, the Defense Intelligence Agency went, uh, never mind. And they just they completely flipped. Mm -hmm. So instead of the 15,000, well, now it was, it was far less than that. Because they suddenly came to their own realization that they were being fed a bunch of crap by the Ukrainians. Uh, Ukrainians have had a lot of support from the Central Intelligence Agency. And I, you know, I got to work on one of the uh, covert action programs back in 1985. Uh, it was against uh, the Soviet Union then in Afghanistan. And our ability to plant stories and put out information that would create the narrative that we wanted was remarkable back then. And this was pre-internet days. Mm -hmm. you know, we, didn't, we didn't have any of the tools of the internet that we have now. Uh, so it was, uh, we had to do it the old fashioned way, you know, go out and hire a videographer to shoot a video, uh, get, get some actual reporter to write a story and they had to type it out on an actual typewriter, but then get that submitted to a particular publication. We literally were getting articles planted in magazines where the editors of the magazines, one, believed that the CIA was a nefarious influence in the world, and two, believed the CIA was trying to get information in their magazine. And the fact of the matter is we did, and they didn't know about it. So I've seen that side of it. So this, this entire media narrative that has been created, it, it really has been somewhat like a video game. It looks real. And you have to look behind the scenes to say, wait a second, where's the beef? Uh, or, or where's the dog barking? Because you tell me you got a big dog, but I don't see a, a food dish and I don't hear any barking. If you compare the siege of Stalingrad in World War II, where the Nazis were finally surrounded and von Paulus was pleading for help, and von Manfred, I think it was, was leading an effort to break through the, the Soviet ring around that city and failed to do so. At least the Nazis tried to break through and rescue their people. What happened to Mariupol? There was no tank column coming from the north. Why? I mean, if the Ukrainian military is as effective and competent and brave and 
etc. Where was the counterattack? It didn't happen. There was no counterattack from air power either. No counterattack from artillery. So you have to actually look at the con what's going on and what should be done if you have a, a competent military and what's not happening. That so you know that tells me right there that the Ukrainian army's ability to affect command and control of mobile forces larger than 150 or say even 600 people has been eliminated. They they can't do it or they they haven't been able to do it so far in three months. We've not seen a single instance. Yet when Russia starts pulling out of these cities uh, north of Kiev, it's touted as, oh, they were forced out by the Ukrainians. Or the other day, oh, the Ukrainians have captured the, uh, the, the border of Russia. They've broken through north of Kharkiv. And you look at these guys, they're out in the middle of the woods carrying, you know, a, a blue and yellow totem pole. And I'm going, wait a second. There are actual roads where there's an actual border crossing with border guards. If you show me the Ukrainians attacking that and taking out Russian border guards, then I'll give them credit for they've taken a border post. But this is like me going out to my backyard with my own blue and yellow pole and declaring it, oh, this is the border of Ukraine. I mean, come on, nonsense. Um, well, speaking of some of these uh the nonsense in the media. So I, uh, when I was in the uh, Donbass just recently, uh, I was there in March and I went back um, on my own in um, uh, mid-April, slightly after. And uh, I'm sure you'll be aware of the screaming headlines about mass graves. Um, no. And so this is based on the, the runaway mayor of Mariupol, whose name eludes me. But anyway, he actually had the um, audacity to say this is the worst war crime of the 21st century alleging there are these mass pits is how he described them i'm sure you've read the reports of up to nine or ten thousand people right so and they provided these fancy satellite images um, to convince the western public and it certainly seems to have convinced the western public but we went to that very spot and we saw what were orderly graves um, and we while we were there the the grave diggers appeared and so we spoke with them and they were adamant that no, each grave contained one body buried uh, with dignity in a coffin, including Ukrainian soldiers, they said. And they said something like, you know, at the end of the day, they're humans and they deserve to be buried. And, and, and so it was quite clear that this was not, I mean, when you hear a mass a grave that evokes an image of a, a big pit, which, right. uh, by the way, have been discovered um, by the Donbass authorities, uh, but not created by Russia, created by the Ukrainian uh, forces who killed civilians and Donbass uh, um, mil military and, and threw them in mass pits. So anyway, I mean, that's that's absurd. But then we have the, the Bucha hoax as well and many others. That was, uh, you know, the, the, the first hoax was the ghost of Kiev, this uh, mythical fighter pilot that was shooting down six or seven Russian combat aircraft. And then it turned out that too was from a video game. Followed by the, the Bucha uh, revelations that oh my god the the russians were there they were at it again it was cut in for us all over they were rounding up civilians and shooting them and yet when i started looking at the images initially i noticed well, all the ones lying dead had the white armband around uh, around their arm or leg which was uh, symbolizing a russian sympathizer then the video emerged and, and the images emerged of these people with uh 
Russian mills ready to eat uh, food supplies from Russia. I'm thinking, what soldier in the right mind gives away food and then uh, kills the people? Right. And then the fact that the Russians had actually evacuated two days before. And then I started looking on social media because you think, you know, if the Russians are going around rounding people up and taking them out and executing them, the internet was still up. Social media was still functioning in that area. Mm-hmm. There is not one tweet, not one whisper that such an event was taking place. And it was only uh, a day after the mayor of uh, Bucha you know, declared, oh, we're free, we're liberated, free at last, thank God almighty, that then all of a sudden these horrific images started to emerge. And, you know, that that told me it was a complete staged event. Those were actually dead people. And I think the the Ukrainians are responsible for killing some of them. Some of them may have died in an artillery strike and had been moved to that location in order to make it appear that the Russians were uh, these murderous thugs. Because the other thing it didn't make sense about is that uh, Russia has been cautious about taking civilian casualties and completely destroying uh, infrastructure that's essential to, for civilian survival. Uh, they have not fought this war as you know, the U.S. always would do shock and awe where we, where we didn't care what we blew up. Right. Uh, remember Fallujah literally leveled that place in, in Iran. So uh, people are having trouble getting their mind around that. And this is part of a, this was a coordinated effort that if we can portray Russia as this ultimate evil and willing to destroy civilians, then we'll build support in the West. And here we are now you know, going on into the fourth month of this conflict. And that, 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 that has failed. That narrative, that covert action, I believe has now failed. Why has it failed? can't find the, the, the story about Ukraine is hardly being reported in, in the West. Uh, the, the story I put up on my blog, sonar21.com last night, uh, featured that the only thing on CNN was about this former U- U.S. soldier we talked about earlier, complaining that, oh man, he'd never been bombed and strafed like that in his life, and it was really difficult to handle. And then uh, over at Fox News, they had one story. That was about they convicted some low-level soldier, Russian soldier for war crimes, and he's going to go away to jail for a long, long time. And MSNBC, (laughs) they didn't have a single article about the war. The only thing they had was about this uh, uh, gay uh, black female basketball player that's uh, in jail for uh, alleged drug, drug paraphernalia. And so that was it. So that's a long ways from where you're putting the story at the top of the issue and say, yeah, look how bad the Russians are, because the American people, frankly, don't care. That The media types care a little bit, but we haven't even seen our that uh, big warrior Malcolm Nance, you know, the, M- the MSNBC, former special. I mean, the guy's a liar, number one, but apart from that, he was all kitted out and all of his... The military would go, yeah, I'm going to go fight the Ruskies. And we haven't heard from him either. Uh, and uh, he's backed out because they recognize that this is uh, all this showmanship is not achieving what they wanted, which was to create a predicate that would have given NATO the wherewithal to go do something. Uh, that's done. 
that's over. And again, so many parallels with how events played out in Syria, how the West tried to foment um, the, the very pretext you're talking about for them to go full on in, in bombing Syria. For example, I think probably the most well-known hoax by this point uh, is the Duma alleged chemical attack. And, and by the way, when I went there um, two or three weeks after the allegations and spoke with people, uh, just like you're saying um, with Bucha, you would have expected people to be immediately on social media talking about it. When I was talking with people in, in Duma, they were like, I don't know, I don't know anything about a chemical attack, but I want to tell you how life was under Jaish al-Islam. They starved us, they executed people in the streets, you know, that was their concern. So again, right. like if it had actually taken place instead of just a staged incident, um, then portrayed as a chemical attack, then they would have been talking about it, you know, but they weren't. Um, The Sea Report and all the shows on this podcast channel are 100% listener supported. We don't have corporate sponsors. We don't have independent sponsors. Our sponsors are you, the listener. So if you like the work we do and like what we have to say and contribute to the world of news and information and entertainment, please show us your support. Make a monthly donation to help sustain future episodes at anchor.fm slash the sea report. Your support is greatly appreciated. From 99 cents per month to 4.99 per month to 9.99 per month. Every donation counts and every bit helps. Show your support for The Sea Report and other shows on this podcast channel by visiting anchor.fm slash The Sea Report. And thanks, y'all. But um, now I don't want to take too much more of your time, but I do want to talk about the other um, elephant in the room that the Western media has just whitewashed from their reporting has erased literally erased from the reporting that is of course the nazis in ukraine now a lot of people are saying well yeah we have some rogue ones here and there every country has them how strong are they in ukraine um i mean i've seen uh, an idar prison a former factory that was turned into a prison in the in the El- um, Lugansk People's Republic and atrocities were committed there against prisoners of war, uh, torture, etc., executions. Um, and we, we've seen a lot of footage coming out of uh, Mariupol where where residents are talking about how they were uh, kept as human shields, both by Ukrainian forces and by the Nazis. Um, so this whole concept of them being just a few bad apples, uh, in, in my understanding, is complete nonsense because they are effectively embedded with Ukrainian forces. I I was not really aware of the Nazi element until about three years ago. I was watching a documentary, What What Our Fathers Knew, I believe is the title. And it features this uh, Jewish attorney from the UK who originally came from the Ukraine. Um, I mean, he's a second generation. And he's interviewing the sons of Hans Frank, who was the governor, the Gauleiter of uh, Poland, over, oversaw all the death camps in Poland. And uh, the Galaiter of Ukraine, the Von Wachter. And so here you got the son. These guys, these men are now in their 70s. And uh, uh, Hans Frank was hung uh, for his war crimes. Uh, he was actually hung at Auschwitz because uh, he oversaw the death camps, uh, all of the, the death camps in Poland. And 
in, in, they made a visit to Ukraine. And during this visit, they show up at one of these SS commemorations. They are commemorating the Waffen SS division of the Ukrainian division that's worked with and fought alongside the Nazis. And there was literally a man in his 90s who says to the son of von Wachter, oh, I remember your father. I wish he was back here. He did such a great job of cleaning up all these Jews. And I'm going, I mean, this was, this was recent. And so when I started looking into it, I was, I was shocked. Um, there, there, there will be, I think, some other news coming out in, in, in the next few weeks. Uh, for example, some of, the, uh, some of the members of the Azov Battalion, for example, they were present in Washington, D.C. on January 6th. They were flown here by Alexandra Chalupa. And uh, they were brought in specifically to help provoke and incite the crowd. Uh, the people I'm familiar with, they've got, the, they've got the flight. They've got the flight information, the hotel information. So it's not made up. So yeah. the, the, and when you talk, try to explain to people that a lot of times calling someone a Nazi is a pejorative without actually explaining what it entails. But in this case, these guys are bona fide Nazis in the sense they... They wear the symbols. They, they embrace the Nazi imagery, number one. They embrace the Nazi ideology of superhuman or the, the, the real people as opposed to the untermensch, the lower level, the subhuman. And, and what's so curious about that is that they portray other Ukrainians as being you know, Slavic and subhuman when they themselves are, are Slavs. Uh, the other excuse is, oh, you can't have Nazis because... Zelensky's a Jew, and they, the Jew would not do that. I, and so that's where I brought up the, the name of Chaim Rumkowski. I don't know if you're familiar with Chaim Rumkowski. He was the, the Jewish elder in charge of the ghetto at Lutz during World War II. He collaborated with the Nazis and facilitated the murders of Jews. So the, the notion that a Jew wouldn't get in bed with the Nazis, sorry, folks been there, done that. It's, it's an old story. It's happened before, and Zelensky is just the latest, uh, let's call him the Chaim Rumkowski of uh, the 21st century. Um, uh, now, Larry, I, I, I myself um, don't do predictions. I'm, I'm not an analyst. I'm a reporter, a journalist that goes to places and tries to give voice to people. But, um, but if I may, and if you don't want to answer this, you don't have to, because I know it's a question that really nobody can answer with clarity, but how do you foresee this, um, what's happening right now, the military operation and everything, the West pumping weapons um, in, into Ukraine? How do you see this ending? Now, the West sending weapons and sharing intelligence with the Ukrainians is like <laughs> pouring, pouring water down a hole. I heard the dog. Yeah, <laughs> she made me jump. <laughs> Maybe I'll let her in. Okay, please get it continue. <laughs> ah, they, they love their mama. Yes. Um, that we're if you send weapons to somebody, there's got to be somebody who can use them. And yet, what's happening is the Ukrainians—they're they're hunkered down. They're in defensive positions. If if they come out of their, as this war has progressed, the the Russians have actually achieved a good situation where they've been able to concentrate now the Ukrainian forces, and those Ukrainian forces have been, have been concentrated. With the drones flying overhead, 
the drones can locate them. And then you can send in both artillery strikes, cruise missile strikes, and, and rockets fired from aircraft. So th- this process of grinding down the Ukrainian military is going to continue. Uh, the notion of uh, we're going to share intelligence with the Ukrainians. So what? So what did we say? There are there are two Russian uh, regiments at such and such location. What's Ukraine going to do? They don't have the air power to strike it. They don't have helicopters or fixed wing aircraft that can get up and, and hit those targets without getting shot down. They don't have a mechanized armor column that they can send over there to crush them. So I, I call that... Yet sending the intelligence to the Ukrainians is like sending a copy of Tolstoy's War and Peace to someone who's illiterate. It's all it's good is maybe a paper waiter to sit on because they can't get anything beneficial from it. Um, so this uh, Russia is also, we, we keep forgetting about Odessa. And I, I think Odessa will be one of the ne- next major targets of the Russians. Once, once the Donbass is secured, then they'll finish off the southern coast of the Ukraine, and then Ukraine is literally uh, emasculated, completely neutered, uh, because they have no economic lifeline to the south, and they're going to be dependent entirely upon going uh, west to Poland. And in going to Poland, the Poland is looking like, increasingly sound like they want to encroach upon and take, take back some of the Ukrainian territory, which once belonged to Poland, such as Lviv. So um, I, I think the, the political fallout from this is going to be interesting because NATO will then be rightly per- perceived as being feckless, weak, ineffectual, uh, despite its tough talk and despite wanting to gain new members. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this this ability to enlist Finland and Sweden, I think, is going to fall apart. Turkey's not going to let it happen. Uh, Turkey is very, very serious about the Kurdish Workers' Party being harbored and given safe haven in places like Finland, Sweden, and even Germany, for that matter. So uh, it, it has a longstanding uh, complaint uh, against uh, other NATO members and facilitating protecting terrorists, what they perceive as terrorists. So I think... Um, I, it will be interesting to see if Ukraine's talking about trying to mount a new counteroffensive. I, I'd like to see it, not because I want to see death and carnage, but they've so far we're three months into this and they haven't shown the ability to do that at all. So it would be a new magical capability that they came up with. And I think, <clears throat> I think it's just another part of their information warfare, putting it out there. Well, in fact, their actual army is being carved up as we speak. And and my understanding um, is that in, in spite of all this rhetoric about the different Western nations sending um, more weapons, um, pledging to send more weapons to Ukraine, that um, a significant amount of their uh, their own Ukraine's weapons have been um, eradicated. And that uh, if I understand correctly, it would take years perhaps for Ukraine to um, to resupply to the level it had before the military operation. I might be getting that wrong, but the, the notion that they can simply resupply quickly and train up the soldiers to be uh, able to use these uh, weapons is false. Yeah, the, tra- the training aspect is, is the critical one. For example, this uh, the 155 millimeter howitzer that has been 
uh, sent. They sent a, it's a gun that has to be towed behind a truck. <clears throat> and it's important to understand when you set up an artillery piece like that out in the field and it starts firing, there is something called counter battery fire. Counter battery means that an aerial platform like the Russians have with a drone or an aircraft can pinpoint the location of that artillery piece and then fire back at it and destroy it. So the tactic to combat counter, the risk of counter battery fire, and this is why you have what they call mobile howitzers, howitzers that are mounted on tank treads. So you're in position A, you fire from position A, and as soon as you fire, you drive up maybe 100 yards, 200 yards to a new position, or you drive backwards, or you drive sideways. You don't stay in the same position firing. So whenever you're seeing images of fixed artillery pieces firing, that tells you, if it's Ukrainian, it tells you they don't have the ability to get out of the way, they're going to get destroyed. If it's Russian, that tells you they're not worried about the Ukrainians firing back because the Russians have the ability to move this equipment. So the United States is not, and all of NATO, they're not sending their latest, greatest technology. They're not sending their frontline equipment. They're sending the hand-me-downs. I don't know if you had a big sister or not growing up, but you know, it's like getting your big sister's old ragged clothing, you know, and that's what your mom wants you to wear. That's what the, that's what the Ukrainians are getting. They're, get, they're getting, the, the, the West is sort of cleaning out its closets, sending, oh, let's send in the Stingers. Stinger's a 42-year-old missile. So it's not like it's the most modern technology available. And we've sent thousands of them, and they have not shot down thousands of helicopters. I think it's the numbers like four or five tops. Wow. Um, so, the, and the javelins have been widely uh, derided by some Ukrainian soldiers as not not working. Now that may be because they were not properly trained. And if they're going to train pilots, whether it's helicopter or fixed wing aircraft, you're looking at months of training. And then once they get trained, where are those aircraft going to be located and operate from? Because Russia continues to show the demonstrate the ability to hit airfields, to hit fuel depots, to hit ammunition depots, and to hit military camps where soldiers are concentrated. That, that I, lit, I know for a fact that the Defense Intelligence Agency was briefing, we believe Russia is going to run out of missiles. So the entire U.S. policy is based on hope. Boy, we, we hope they run out of those missiles, which <clears throat> um, just shows you how pathetic U.S. intelligence capabilities are right now. We really are blinded. We don't know what's going on inside of Russia. And we added to it we, by cutting off every bit of contact and trying to isolate Russia. We've actually created a, it's a more dangerous situation because now we're literally in the dark about anything that Russia is doing. In the past, if you had some intelligence assets, whether they were telling the truth or not to know their issue, but at least they, you had some ability to claim that you had information coming from the inside that you could count on. <clears throat>
Um, sorry, uh, we have about <laughs> just under 10 minutes left, um, but I did want uh, just in brief to know, I think people would be interested to, to know how did yourself go from a, a career in the CIA, uh, the State Department, and um, perhaps you want to name any other uh, government related uh, positions you held to your current uh, having very critical uh, views um, and analysis of uh, U.S. government policies? I started off in the CIA in 1985, went to what they called the Career Trainee Program. I wound up as the Senior Regional Analyst on Central America. This was during the Contra War, so I was directly involved with the trying to counter Soviet subversion of Central America. Um, <clears throat> I got fed up at the CIA, left in 1989, uh, and Ambassador Morris Busby, who was the coordinator for counterterrorism, asked me to come work for him at the State Department. Uh, I was working on anti-terrorism assistance training, um, maritime transportation security, and special operations with the U.S. military. I did that for four years. They downsized the office. I was there as a contractor. So they decided terrorism was no longer an issue. And so I went out into the world of private contracting. One of, one of the first jobs I actually had was I served as a bodyguard for a CIA female contractor who was going to Ukraine, to Kiev. Uh, I, was, I was there to protect her from a guy we called Vyach the Lech, Vyacheslav the Lecher. And uh, so I, my consulting business uh, included providing uh, training for U.S. military special operations forces and doing the exercises and then also doing financial investigations. So I, I maintained clearances up until about three years ago. Uh, it was uh, top secret clearances read into some of the highest level material. And uh, the, the benefit I had as a result of my career is I wasn't pigeonholed. Uh, I worked with the intelligence community, both with DIA, the CIA. I worked with the law enforcement side, FBI. I was, uh, I was one of their principal liaison with the FBI on the investigation of the Pan Am 103 uh, bombing. Uh, I dealt with transportation security on both the maritime and aviation side. And then I dealt with the military special operations forces. I was involved with over 250 exercises, both the scripting and execution. So I, I got to see sort of how the, the entire piece of sausage is put together from the start to finish. And that gave me some real insights into deciphering what you see in the public. You know, one of the earliest lessons I learned at the CIA was if, the, if there was a real secret and everybody in the government agreed upon it, it wouldn't leak to the press. But if there was disagreement over a particular issue, it would leak and information that was top secret would be on the front pages of the Washington Post and the New York Times. So you're always able to sort of track what's going on by looking at part what's going on in the press, who's saying what or what's not being said. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you for a fact that <clears throat> if uh, Russia was actually suffering the kinds of casualties they're talking about, let's see the intelligence community be out leaking and providing actual information on that. They're not doing that. They're not doing anything because it doesn't exist. And, and so that's just one of the ways that I try to parse through all of the, the garbage that's out there floating around in the, uh, the, the political waters.
Well, uh, Larry, thank you so much for your time. I think that given your um, your um, your history of, of work that you've just outlined in brief, um, I, I think it's just really a, a great antidote to uh, to the people who just you know will will dismiss people like myself as a Russian um, agent or what have you, because you're clearly not, and yet you you're you're um, stating very articulately based on research and critical thinking things uh, that don't jive with the mainstream narrative, and so I think it's really powerful. And I think people that maybe were sitting on the fence confused, uh, hopefully if they see this interview, they will start to shift their thinking um, uh, to at least start asking questions and, and um, questioning the narrative. So thank you very, very much for speaking with me. Well, Eva, thank you for having me. Appreciate it.